0: This is including you. The new series from Lead at Any Level, including you features stories from chief diversity officers and other executives who are creating inclusive cultures in their organizations. Our goal is to show what's working in companies just like yours, to give you the tools you need to keep pushing for progress in your own workplace. We want to create belonging and opportunity for everyone, including you. And now here's your host, Amy C. Waninger.
1: Welcome back to Including You. I'm your host, Amy C. Wanninger, the inclusion catalyst. My guest today is Amy barnard Vaughn. She's an attorney and executive coach and a partner in the compliance and ethics law firm of Kaplan & Walker. She's been an advocate for disability rights, pay equity, and women on boards, and she's the author of The Promotability Index. Amy, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: I'm really excited to talk to you because you've done, you've had an impressive career in and around social justice work from a variety of perspectives. And I just wanted you to talk a little bit, just to set the stage for what we're going to talk about today, a little bit about how your worldview has been informed by your career and vice versa.
2: Thank you. Sure. Somehow I came out fighting. (laughs) I grew up in a conservative gender role family and somehow just didn't like the status quo At all. So I'd say from an early age, I was looking for ways to try to get in and change that. When I was in high school, I worked at a battered women's shelter. That was a huge eye opener in terms of a lot of the issues, societal issues we're dealing with. I decided that I'd be best. I wanted to be an artist, but then realized I might not be able to change the world much from that specifically. So I decided to go to law school, felt that would equip me much better to advocate. And so I One of the best jobs I had was at the ACLU Legislative Office, a summer of 1990 on a Georgetown Fellowship. I worked with Kai Feldblum, who was lobbying through the American with Disabilities Act. So I had the privilege of doing that. And that was phenomenal mix of cross-functional groups from healthcare, disability rights, paralyzed veterans. It was religious groups, psychiatric groups. It was remarkable. And then we also worked on LGBTQ+ legislation. I wound up becoming the first openly lesbian and uh, disabled EEOC commissioner under President Obama. So she just went on to do amazing things and was an incredible inspiration to work for. Then I graduated from law school, went to a law firm, had huge student loans to, to pay off. So put kind of some of my dreams on the back burner for a couple of years and then found out that I was just miserable. It didn't work. So I went into HR. I found that Litigation was just really not something that I was interested in. I wanted to get ahead of problems before they came. And I found a lot of, I did some discrimination lawsuits, pregnancy discrimination, other types of discrimination and found that if companies just treated people with more respect or did better investigations or had better policies or trained people better that you could resolve problems more effectively and more peacefully. So I went into HR for about 11 years headed up workplace practices and policies, implemented investigations protocols, helped make sure that people were fairly adjudicated, if you will, that issued the same violation for a person that was a rock star producer would be disciplined, the same as someone who maybe wasn't as popular. So that kind of equality was very important to me in terms of organizational justice. And I learned a lot from that and just the corporate system, if you will, and how do we create an ethical system and a fair system, promotions, pay, uh, all of that. Tried to always be at the center of that. And so I worked in corporate for about 20 years in a variety of roles, general counsel, chief compliance and ethics officer, chief HR officer, and then decided I was done with my corporate role and founded my own coaching and compliance uh, law firm. And uh, now I do executive coaching and then work in Kaplan and Walker with regard to, again, large systems and equity and and good business practices. And then in my extra time, unpaid time, I have lobbied and testified for the Women on Boards Act in California and Washington and Advise Oregon. So these are the first laws in the country that require corporate boards to add women. You'd like to think we wouldn't need a law, but the numbers didn't change until we did. So that was fun to work on and I think has opened the door for about 600 women over three years. In terms of actual numbers, hopefully more, because we hope it'll just become a norm for, and frankly, open the door for anyone who is traditionally underrepresented, because obviously it was mostly white men prior to this. So we find that when we can open the door for one underrepresented group, it tends to open the door for everyone because it just breaks open what's been done. That's the hope. And then I write and speak and advocate, I write for Harvard Business Review, and I speak in keynotes in various areas that I hope will be helpful and help inspire other people to join the fight.
1: I love this notion of you came out fighting. It's something that you can't help but do. And so you found a way to put that to work for you and have it be an asset rather than a liability in your career. And that can be very difficult.
2: It didn't feel natural for a long time. I was not comfortable with who I was because my environment didn't support it. So if anyone out there has had that, I get you.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I want to focus today, you've done a lot of work in corporate spaces and you talked about, just touched on a little bit in in that opening, a little bit about meritocracy. And I want to focus our conversation today on this notion of meritocracy in corporate spaces, because I hear as a diversity inclusion practitioner, and consultant, leadership trainer, oh, we just want the best people in the right roles. We just want the best talent to rise to the top. And so I'm curious, after your 20 years in corporate and all the work that you've done in and around this this notion of justice and equity, do you think the best talent rises to the top in most organizations?
2: I think it depends. I think definitely not consistently. That's um, a lawyer
1: answer. It depends.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I have to start with that. Some organizations I think do a very thoughtful job. And the more that they're my big overarching statement would be the more process, more objective process that is in place, the more likely that is to happen. Just as with hiring, having consistent questions, having a set panel interview so that a multiplicity of views are taken into account in the same room, everybody's hearing the same answers. That kind of thing can be very important, adapted to promotions and merit- and raises and perks and special assignments, special high visibility projects that could get you promoted, all of those things. What in... I recently wrote an article on how to identify and fix pay inequality at your organization for Harvard Business Review, and I did some deep research for that as I do for all of them, and found that the companies that that talk the most about how great they are at equity are actually often the ones to look out for because they've become complacent. Meritocracy takes a lot of work. It's simple, but it's not easy. And it requires constant vigilance because there can always be, there's always creep we've found that slides in. I'll, I'll use pay if you don't mind just as a simpler one because it's so objective. Money is, is so objective as to people's various talents and experience in the role and those kinds of things. It can be a little harder at to do apples to apples, but pay is pay. And so what we find is if organizations need to do pay equity audits, which is where you compare apples to apples jobs, regularly like every three years and you look at there can be differentiators such as years in the role level of educational experience things like that but once you allow for that things should be the same and we find that if people if companies don't look at that there's a scope creep of about five percent of company of people need to pay a judge adjustment of anywhere from zero to three percent and over time even those same companies that have done this for, to say, 10 years, three years later, they've got the same scope creep. So that just showed, that's a company that's show, that's demonstrating, investing, caring in trying to pay people equally according to race, ethnicity, disability, gender, age, sexual orientation, which is harder to track, by the way, because it's not always disclosed. So usually race and gender are the ways that, that it can be tracked. So we don't have as much data on that. But that's the kind of thing that I see, Amy, is that People need to be conscious. Your interview pool. I hope it's obvious that people should be aiming for. uh, I'm also a board on a board of trustees for president. We just had a meeting this weekend and the board was very clear about how many candidates were black, how many candidates were of color, how many male, how many female. That was really important to us. So that doesn't mean that the whole process, then you hope then we asked about the process, how all of that was done. It seemed like it was very regimented so that equal access to the decision makers, no conflicts of interest. These are things that can tank meritocracy. You
1: know, it's interesting to me because what, in my own experience in corporate, and when I have conversations with other people who have spent a lot of time there, there seems to be a disconnect between what executives truly value when they're considering raises, promotions, plum assignments, and what ambitious workers who have maybe been excluded from the conversation in the past for whatever reason, whether it's because they didn't they didn't grow up in a, a corporate family or they don't have access to the right mentors or sponsors early in their career. But there seems to be a disconnect between what executives value and reward and what ambitious professionals who don't know better think executives value and from and reward. Can you talk a little bit about that disconnect?
2: Sure, because I know I experienced it as I was was working the corporate ladder. It's part of what led me to create the self-assessment, maybe we'll talk about later, because I didn't think it should be such a mystery. And looking back, I think there are five key elements that companies look to when promoting people. One is self-awareness. Are you aware of how your behaviors impact other people? Good and bad, strengths and, and weaknesses. Number two, external awareness. How are you at reading other people, working with them? Are they willing to follow you? do you have good influence skills that kind of thing the third is strategic thinking are you able to think beyond your own job in terms of where your industry is heading the work you're doing and see around corners and it's that's more about actually being viewed as a strategic thinker and we can talk about this too how important it is to demonstrate that you have the capability because if you aren't vocal about it or if you don't get seen in the right ways no one's going to know And one of the worst mistakes people make is to think that they're going to be noticed naturally for their talents and achievements. And I appreciate that there are a lot of introverts or shy people, and I was one of them. But to get recognized and to really have a voice and step into your power, you need to get more comfortable with that and happy to talk about ways to do that. I know people worry that they're going to come off as a braggart. Nobody likes a braggart or a jerk. So there is a continuum, but completely being silent about it doesn't work either. So that's important. And then thought leadership, becoming known for for your expertise, speaking about it, talking about it. Those things are very important. The other thing I would say, Amy, is that people underestimate the importance of the value of their relationship with their peers. Normally, you're managing up to your boss. You want your boss to give you a good rating. And if you have direct reports, ideally, you feel a strong responsibility and privilege in leading them, and mentoring them, and helping their growth, and giving them actionable feedback. People ignore their peers at their peril. It's a natural thing to do, but the more that I've done 360 reviews, which is when I review people up, down, and across for companies, when I'm doing a coaching for promotion, that's peers are very honest, and they're the harshest critics. Why? Because they've been competing with you for the same jobs. So there's this very Interesting relation. It's a mixed motive relationship, and I, I wrote about this in navigating peer relationships on your way up the ladder because it's, it's fraught with difficulty. And I had challenges, so it was fun to write about because I wanted to process the experience. You start off as colleagues when you're all little baby workers and may go to lunch together, and have coffee, go out for drinks. But then as, as thing, it, things get more complicated as you go up, and so back to your original question, what becomes more important? As you reach a certain journey level let's say in your career you're good at what you do you've been doing it for five to seven years you've got the credentials that's when your relationships are going to differentiate you and it's those people that are going to then rise it's not about your skills anymore and that comes as a surprise to a lot of people who have worked their tail off to get their MBA to, to get their engineering degree whatever it is and They feel that but that's not what leadership looks at. Leadership looks at, can you scale yourself? That's great. Now you've earned the right to potentially direct people who do what you do, but you're removed one step away from the work. And the only way organizations really achieve great things is through people managing other people. So people have to be willing to follow you, trust you, get the work done, execute. So that can be um, a disconnect as well.
1: You mentioned about making this explicit. Uh, because it's not clear. No. There's nowhere in the employee handbook. There's nowhere in the interview process. There's no. There's no checklist. There's no guide that your mm-hmm. employer hands you and says, "If you want to get to the next level, these are the the five things that you need to work on." And so, you see this obfuscation of these criteria as a pretty significant systemic barrier to people getting ahead
2: if they've been left out in the past. Is that correct? I do. I do. Because you could get blindsided. You may be working completely on very hard on the things that aren't going to get you ahead. And no one's necessarily going to notice it in a way that they can articulate it to you.
1: Yeah, I think some executives even have a hard time explaining this, or if you if pressed, right, would have a hard time saying, Uh, these are the things that we're looking for. They have some language around it, but it's pretty murky. It's things like executive presence or (laughs) it factor or wow factor, but they can't really explain what are the components of executive presence.
2: Yeah. Which is sad and either lazy or we just need to fix it. In my opinion, the worst is, and I've gotten this before. So frustrating is you're doing great. You're just not there yet just keep doing what you're doing. And it's like, what am I supposed to do with that? That's not actionable. Get more specific. Yeah, Yeah, so my hope and my mission is to remove more subjectivity from the system because that's where we really see bias. It's just, oh, I like you, I feel comfortable with you. Okay, I'm gonna promote you. You you do well enough at your job. That's not how it should be done, that's not a meritocracy. So we need to get really clear about, is it my presentation, what is executive presence? I break it down based on research. It's presentation skills, it's gravitas or grace under pressure taking that being able to take the heat and be a cool cucumber and then the third a tiny part of it is appearance which really only matters the most on your first impression but it's mostly about communication oral and written presentation skills second having that ability to be the voice of reason and have people listen to you and then third is you know a little bit appearance mm-hmm. as opposed to just saying yeah improve your executive presence what the hell does that mean
1: yeah exactly and a lot of that is wrapped up in what people expect a leader to look like or what the the kind of personage the body or the skin color or the gender presentation of what we expect leaders to look like in an organization because of what past leaders have looked like in an organization, which adds a whole other level of Mm -hmm. frustration to this. As you were talking about, you're doing fine, just keep doing what you're you're doing. I was thinking about if you've ever played one of those old video games where you get to the boundary of the world and you keep walking forward and it's like they're on a one-step treadmill. The yes. the characters you know talking yeah. about. Yeah. And and that's what it feels like to be in that space. It's like I'm just gonna keep taking the same one step, but I'm not getting anywhere. I might slide a half inch to the left or a half inch to the right, but I, I'm not making any progress. And that can be really frustrating. And people don't know what to do with that because then you think they're not invested in me when really the manager might be very invested. They just don't know what to tell you.
2: Yeah, it's true. And the the promotion decision. Is one of the most critical actions that an organization takes and once made, if it's not made fairly, it can cause considerable damage morale you know, people leaving. Um, the feeling of, of fairness or justice in the organization promotions are a discrete employment moment that we can flag and say, we can do this better. We could be more transparent about the reasons for it, for who got promoted and why, and then for the people who didn't get promoted, tell you are. And so my hope is to help create a shared language around this that employees and employers can share so that they can get very specific about the actions and so that it's not just about people like us or who I'm most comfortable with.
1: Yeah, And you said something else that I thought was really interesting about people saying, I'm just going to put my head down and do the work and I'll be recognized for my hard work. I hear this all the time. And the people that I hear it from are women, Black and brown folks, and people from working class backgrounds. Mm-hmm. If you just work hard enough, they'll, if I just work hard enough, they'll tap me on the shoulder. They'll recognize how dedicated I am. They'll recognize how good I am. And it is so important, like you said, to figure out a way to speak your success mm-hmm. around to the people around you and get that buzz. Because if, as my son put it, if it's just you, if it's just your work against somebody else and all of their social capital. It's not your work against their work. It's your work against all of them. Yes. And that's a huge difference, right? In terms of, of competition, when you're talking about there's one spot for eight people that are, or 30 people or however many that are competing.
2: So. That's a dangerous myth. It's. It is. We should, we should work to dispel it. <laughs> <laughs> it's never about your work speaking for It's off. Yeah. And my advice to hiring managers is, or to
1: team managers of teams is help your people learn to Mm self-promote because it doesn't just make them look good. It makes you as their manager look good because now they're all talking about how great the team is.
2: Great advice. And the other thing that we could offer Amy as a tip is if you're super shy and super introvert, get a wing person (laughs) to to be your promoter and like a, a good friend that's in frequent meetings with you. And you can each support each other and say, Oh, Susan just had a great idea when she and I were having lunch the other day or or, Jamar you were just talking about this in the hallway like share this and so it's just that kind of thing that's very important of course when we see over talking and interrupting in meetings is to have a a wing person in the room to say Susan just said that a few minutes ago can we let her finish because often you it can be harder for you to do that but if someone else does it Frankly, it looks makes the person look twice as bad. And hopefully they won't do it again. Or they'll apologize. As long as people just get excited. They don't mean to. Let's not assume.
1: <laughs> exactly. And I have been known to shout in a meeting, You're not listening to me. Stop talking and let me finish. I may have done that a time or two and people will turn and, and get shocked, but it's look up. <laughs> I'm only trying to help you here. So, Amy, I see two sides to this issue of promotability as we've been discussing it. The first is employees need to understand what really matters for them to get ahead. They need Mm -hmm. to play to what matters and not just where they're comfortable or where they feel safe. And then the second is organizations really need to change their systems to ensure that people aren't artificially excluded because you've got really talented people sitting there that if they knew which hoops to jump through could really make things happen in the organization. So let's start with what advice do you have for professionals? We mentioned a couple things already, but where else can professionals go to get some more uh, concrete knowledge around this topic of promotability?
2: I I believe in radical self-reliance. It's wonderful if you have a mentor and a sponsor, but you don't always have the fortune for that. So I think figuring out what your strengths are, where you need to work, what's valued in the organization, that, is a critical way you can help yourself. The other thing that's really important that I talk a lot about in my book is the importance of getting really good at receiving and giving feedback. It's very important if you aren't getting the feedback you need and studies show that people of color and women do not get the critical feedback that they need to make those pivots that may be holding them back from a promotion or getting broader responsibilities or more pay. And so if it's not being given to you, It's your responsibility, don't just wait around to ask. And so one suggestion I have is just not during performance review cycle or pay cycle out of it so that in a relaxed moment, ask your boss, ask your peers, hey, I'd really value your feedback. I wanna be the best I can be. I can't always be objective about how I'm coming off. What one thing could I do that would help me do my job better? And then the key is to stop, be ready for an uncomfortable pause, but It'll usually be filled by them saying, huh, thanks for asking. You could do this. And nine times out of 10, people will tell you things they would never tell you because you made it psychologically safe for them to say it. And you get an amazing range of feedback. Caveat, you don't have to agree with it, but then you know what their perception is of you, and then you can work to change it because people are, th- we're thinking about people and what we think of them all the time. We're little meaning makers in our heads. So it does no good if it's a blind spot for you. And if someone doesn't like the way you do one thing or whatever, it's information, it's data, it's something that you can do with it. So those are things that I would suggest, Amy, that people can do on their own.
1: I think that's super advice. And I think more people should take that advice because ultimately, as we were talking about before we started recording, nobody's coming to save you. We've seen that, right? As Mm -hmm. as people who have been on the outskirts of power, on the outskirts of, of promotions, people who have had trouble getting ahead or even getting to where we want to be. If they haven't come to save you yet, it's probably not going to happen. We have to start figuring out ways to save ourselves. But the other side of this is the systems and structure side that the company is responsible for. And in just a minute or two, can you tell us what concrete steps can company leaders take to remove some of these artificial and frankly costly barriers that their systems are creating because they're losing out on really key talent?
2: Yeah, I don't know any organization that would say, oh, I'm only going to use 20% of my talent and focus on that. That's really sad um, to not have, and especially with all the layoffs and the labor shortage, I hope companies are thinking more strategically about how they can leverage all their talent. I would say companies need to pay attention to all of their key employee lifecycle processes, hiring, that's cradle to grave, hiring discipline, who gets promoted and why, who gets bonuses and why, and then why are people leaving. So uh, as the CHRO, those were the touch points that I looked at that were so critical. Are we fair and giving opportunities at each of those opportunities to join us? If there's an issue, are we disciplining fairly and equitably? And then if we're promoting and, ho- and moving things around projects, how, how are those privileges given? And then when we're exiting, how good a job do we do? What's our brand? Do people th- think we were fair or are they leaving because of us or because of a, a toxic manager? or an unfair manager. So companies need to, I, would, I evaluate each of those life cycle pieces <clears throat> in companies that I had the ability to do that. In, and I'd always tried to be in, the, in a position to do that and to take as much subjectivity out, have two level decision-making in some cases, have a review, um, have policies in place with regard to say investigations. So you, those are the kinds of things you want to have in place before you need them so that there is no perception of bias uh hiring interns, same thing. The worst is when I worked for a company and my boss's boss, they traded off having their sons work for each other. Those just hurt morale. It's just eye rolling behind the scenes and and no one feels that that's going to be a fair company. Absolutely.
1: So. so for folks that want to get a little bit deeper into this, you've laid some things very laid some things out very clearly about what needs to be explicitly managed from an employee's perspective in order to move up, in order to be promotable. How can people assess their own promotability index?
2: I created it. (laughs) I created the promotability index and I made it free because I want everybody to have access to this. And I don't think it should be hidden away somewhere, just passed along privately. So I reverse engineered promotions based on all of my experience, my coaching, my work, being in the promotion meetings, being in the board meetings. And those five elements that I mentioned earlier, you could take the assessments, 82 questions. It's just yes or no. It goes direct to you in a PDF, and you can see how you work out on each of the five uh, areas and decide what you'd like to work on. And then if you want to buy my guidebook, um, it gives over 30 exercises broken down into each of the five areas. And it's also done like a journal, so it, it takes into account what we know about Journaling and, and setting intention, and the fact that if we write something down, we're twice as likely to actually do it and realize it in terms of our visioning for ourselves. And I also created it so that you can come back at any time and retake it. People take it annually to see, and you can see your progress, which is very fun and a celebration moment because if you work on some of these things, you will just keep getting better. And it's a kind of thing that I don't think anyone can get a perfect score on, Amy. I I don't. (laughs) And I made it that way on purpose again, because it's choose your own adventure. You may decide that executive presence is something you really want to work on or thought leadership and getting some of your content published, your ideas out there. That's great. Maybe three years from now, you want to work on something different. So I also wanted to make it a little more fun. I feel like performance management has just gotten so look back and not inspiring in terms of because you can't change the past. You can only change the future. So this is all about future forward.
1: Excellent. So where can folks find this free assessment?
2: Sure. It's on my website at barnardbond.com and mm-hmm. you'll see a little pop-up and, or you'll see a little um, dropdown that says promotability index. It works great on mobile. If you're waiting at a bus station or you're waiting for your kids to get out of a game or something, or you're just bored somewhere, you could take it. And, and I hope I, people say that you know, I tried to combine, I had no intention of writing a book when I created it. So I combined What I thought were, I hoped, evocative questions that also were action-oriented. So that just by asking the question, you think, oh, I should be doing that more. I was asked by colleagues to write the book. They were like, I don't know how to, I want to do this, but I don't know what to do. And so I, it was COVID and I thought, okay, I can write a book about it. It It's really a guidebook. It's not a book. It's not like a 300 page boring business book. So there are enough of those in the world, but so I hope people like it.
1: Excellent. We'll make sure to put the link to both the assessment and the book that's not boring or 300 pages (laughs) uh, in the show notes so people can access that. Amy Barnard Bond, thank you so much for sharing your expertise, your experience, and your wisdom with us today. I appreciate Uh,
2: it. Thank you so much for having me, Amy.
0: If you've enjoyed this episode, follow Lead at any level on LinkedIn and YouTube. Then join us for including you video simulcast every Thursday at noon. Eastern including you can also be enjoyed each week as part of the living corporate audio podcast series available on all major podcast platforms. Learn more at living corporate.com. Including you is brought to you in part by lead at any level, a boutique training and consulting firm, improving employee engagement and retention for companies that promote from within lead at any level. Leaders can be anywhere and should be everywhere. Learn more at leadatanylevel.com. Lead at any level and its logo are registered trademarks of Lead at Any Level LLC. The views and opinions of guests on our show do not necessarily reflect the positions of Lead at Any Level, Living Corporate, or the sponsors of Including You.
1: That's it for this week's edition of Including You. Be sure to join me next week when my guest will be Chief Officer Kara Herring from the Office of the Governor, Lieutenant Holcomb of Indiana.